Good afternoon. Hope everyone is doing well. I'll give everyone a chance to come in. How are we doing so far, Ari? So it's not recording. It's doing something weird. Let's take a look here. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just press Could not this start here. shooting. Okay, I'm going to try it again. Nothing yet? Okay, so I'm going to try this. And see what happens. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Having some interesting difficulties with my thing here, but let me try... Hello everyone. Hello Sam. Good seeing you. Thank you Project for all the kind words. I'm here trying to set up this crazy computer of mine to make sure everything is good. So let's try now. How's that? It says no card. No card. Okay. Let me try it. Let me start afresh. So I have this pretty cool camera here that I use to uh, do all my filming and it's misbehaving. So I'm powered off. I'm going to check my card. So what I do with this camera allows me the opportunity, happy Tuesday to you as well, Joe. I use this opportunity to record things for YouTube, which I put up after this interaction with all of you this afternoon. So I'm going to set this up now, and hopefully Ari can connect. Okay. Are you connecting? And let's try recording. Perfect. We're recording. Awesome. AJ, good seeing you. Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. Let's see. Who did I miss so far? Uh, Sam's here, CP, good seeing you, Jay, good seeing you as well, hello Jack, thank you for the kind words, Project, thank you for the kind words as well, hello Fresh, hello Nick, hello Raul, wow, thank you so much, Pasha, thanks for the kind words, hello Sean, good seeing you, thank you so much Jason, I have a great team, I love what I do, and today I'm with my wonderful, wonderful assistant Ariana, say hi Ari, hi. see Ari right there, she's saying hi, there you go, so guys, thank you so much for joining us at this great Tech Tuesday. I'm here to assist. We're going to have a great time today interacting. We're going to have a blast. So many questions came in. Hello, Four Door. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Ari just joined as well with her 2J. She mm -hmm. loves her 2Js. She loves everything and anything Toyota, Lexus. We love all cars, don't we? Okay, so without further ado, let's start off. Ari, what questions do we have so far? We're going to start with an AJ question. AJ, you're here. We have to start with your question first. When you bring Stitch back out, yes. would you stick to the F-Series platform for making high NA power or switch over to K-Series? Which one would be best for the needs of the car? Okay, hello Alex. So what would be best for the needs of the car, it's just asking would I stay with the F-Series single cam that I have in the Stitch vehicle, which is a 2006 Insight with a naturally aspirated F-22A, or would I follow the herd and go with a K-Series, which has been done quite a bit. So that being said, it's easier, more straightforward, and not more advantageous for all of us for me to stay with the F-Series. I have scratched the surface slightly with that engine. There's quite a bit more power potential for that. I'm very, very proud of that project car because the engine is one where everything was designed from scratch. There was no aftermarket support for that F-22A. Everything was bespoke. Pistons, rods, valve train, camshafts, rocker arms, induction, exhaust. There's so much there that we've done, and there's so much to be done. So that being said, I'm going to keep it as is now. My question is, will I go NA and stay that way, or go boost? We'll see. Hello, Four Banger. Thanks for joining us. Hello, lady. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. And AJ, that was a wonderful question, by the way. Okay, what else do we have, Ari? We have a question from A.O. Compton. A.O. Compton. Did you guys work on a Fiero? On a Fiero? No. So I think I know what you're responding to. And before I get to that question about a Fiero, AJ is asking a stock crank, no. If I go boosted, yes. With NA, I'll do something bespoke as I always have. So I hope that answers your question properly. With um, our friend asked about a Fiero, no. What you saw in the videos, um, especially I think with the one we do with Netflix, was a 914. I can imagine how that red 914 could be confused with a Pontiac Fiero. And I like Fieros except for their lack of reliability. But nonetheless, Hello, Alfie. Thanks for joining us. Um, it was a Fiero. It was a 914. And that's almost the, uh, how should I say, the Del Souls of Porsche, which is pretty interesting. Mid-engine, two-seater, lots of fun, and something that's a little more attainable nowadays compared to 911. So it's pretty nice. Hello, Kale. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Okay. What else do we have, Marie? 
We have a good question from, I'm going to butcher his name, no but NY Man. NY Man, okay, New York Man. Hello, Dougie. Could you go into some depth on how you set up your tunes? Okay, into depth. He wasn't the high set of my tunes. Um, well, first of all, the, the units that I find appealing, my dyno machine, dynamometer of choice, is a Dynapack. And I get a lot of questions of why do I like the Dynapack so much. So let's start off with that. You don't have to worry about a tire interface with a Dynapack. You remove the tire as a variable. And why is that important? Tires can skew results significantly. Um, you have an opportunity where if you have tire growth, it can throw your results off, so you don't have consistency there. And that tire growth occurs the more and more that you have your session, and the longer it goes. More heat gets into the tire and it expands. Secondly, tire noise. Tire noise has a very loud, high-pitched roar, which has a hard time allowing the operator and people around to differentiate that from knock. So especially with cars that don't have knock sensor systems in place, you want to be able to make sure you hear everything properly. Then, we have the issue with inertia dynos where you have rollers on, where if you have an alignment that's not good, slightly off, slightly toe in, slightly toe out, you can scrub quite a bit and have extreme variables and numbers and not true results. Above and beyond that, inertia dynos don't allow me as a tuner to be able to tune partial throttle properly, and it's a bit of a problem for me. I'm a huge advocate of partial throttle tuning. Hey, Hedy, huge advocate of that and giving the opportunity to have cars leave here off the track, or on the track, driving like a factory car that's more powerful. Partial throttle is more important to me. And you have some transient engine response and power that can come from doing a good job with that. How many times do I have people already come here and their cars run like crap in partial throttle but are fantastic full throttle and we fix those. So the Dynapack allows me to do that. And here's how and why. Above and beyond the safety, not being able to worry about strapping down the car, you can just connect the hubs directly to the Dynapack machines, the two pods or four pods, depending on your application. And that being said, hello, Banda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the kind words. You have the capability of having, with hydraulics in the dyno, full control of the entire drivetrain. So, sorry about the noise going by. We have a busy complex here. I do something very, very interesting. I start off the cars um, on the dyno. I optimize air-fuel ratios at idle to make sure they're close to stoichiometry, if not as stoichiometry. I raise the throttle in neutral to check and make sure that the fuel ratios are ideal in that region, in the vacuum region. Then I lock the vehicle at 2,000 RPMs using the dyno software. Then I tip in and engage, let's say, in fourth gear third or fourth gear, which is great. The good thing about Dynapacks is no matter what gear you're in, it gives you the same power output, which you don't see with inertia dynos, because inertia dynos look at energy that's being absorbed by the wheel, and when you change your gears and you have different torque multiplication, that energy output is different. Well, with a Dynapack, you have to put in the gear ratios. It takes the energy that's absorbed by the pod units, by the dyno itself, and it divides it by the gear ratio that's in the chassis, giving you very, very good Opportunities. Thank you, Ford Sedan. I appreciate that. It's, it drives like a stock. So 2,000 RPMs, I lock the dyno at 2,000 RPMs. I initiate, let's say, in fourth gear. I start off at very low throttle position regions, and I optimize fuel and ignition timing at low throttle positions. Then I go up slightly, optimize ignition and fuel. And how do I do that? The Dynapack gives me the capability of real-time seeing the power output. So I can see the power go up or down based upon what I do. I explore stoichiometry in low RPM regions and get a little richer in higher RPM regions, um, or higher throttle regions, I should say. So I do that at 2,000 RPMs. Then I go to 2,500 and repeat. 3,000, repeat. 3,500, repeat. All the way up close to red line. And when I get to higher RPMs because of load and some engines are not very happy being loaded for extended periods of time, I do it very quickly. And I have an opportunity where I have a very simple algorithm that allows me to know what percentage of fuel to add or remove to get to the fuel ratios that I want. Then after that, I do what many of you are very familiar with, sweeps. I have the opportunity to sweep it from a set RPM, let's say 1,700 to 4,000, look at fuel ratios, look at uh, knock, look at all the things that are involved there, and I continue until I get to the entire sweep of the entire power band. And then there's cam control involved. I address cam control at the time, optimize ignition timing. And many times, you don't have to worry about ignition timing being optimized near knock. Many engines don't become very efficient near knock. You know, um, 
What would you have to do to add a turbo to an air-cooled engine, Steve asks? Um, add a turbo. <laughs> anyway, I'm being silly. Ari's <laughs> laughing at me. Yes. Um, you have to design an exhaust manifold that matches up to a turbo. You have to decide if you're going with a single or dual or compound setup. Then you have to design an exhaust manifold that is optimal for that setup, especially if you know what you're doing with the car. Is it something that be street-driven? Is it a full-track car? Is it a road race, drag race, drag queen? All that plays a role into the manifold design. Shorter runners give you a lot more spool, but can actually hurt your top-end power. Long runners can have the opportunity to elongate that spool capability a little bit, but also give you more opportunities for top-end. So it depends. And after that, you can do it. It's not any different from a water-cooled engine. The air-cooled or water-cooled is just a capability of cooling mechanisms where you're using more air or using more water and oil. It depends. So the, the, the opportunities are very similar. If you're doing something in the street, definitely you want to explore shorter runners and smaller manifolds. I'm a huge advocate of the Turbinex TNX 20 series because they have great capability everywhere from, we've done everything from uh, 380 horsepower to wheel setups to as big as, with twin turbo small TNX internal gated 2.5, uh, we pushed up to 600 plus, which is pretty nice. So I hope that helps. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. So Ari, what other questions do you have? Uh, Kenny Boy. Kenny Boy, I don't think he's here today. He wants to know, hey, Shippy. what was the purpose for the Boxman and what are some specs on it or lap times? Okay. I asked because there was a blog that was claiming that you only built it to sh as a show car. Oh, that's so funny. My pleasure, Steve. So, Ari's asking a question that the gentleman asked, Kenny Boy asked, about this Boxman I have back here, which is a pretty cool race car that we put together, that there are people out there, one blog in particular, I don't know who he is, who says it's a show car, which is interesting. So, you know what's interesting? I built a show car for Honda, and people want me to take it to the track. I built a track car, specifically, and people say it's a show car. It's kind of confusing. But anyway... So here's the deal. Why do we build this car? It started with my relationship with Porsche. Uh, the team and I were invited a few years back to test some cars at Fontana Raceway on the big track. I had the opportunity to explore everything from the new Cayenne Turbo to 911 Turbo to the Panamera uh, to the Cayman R. And of all those cars, the Cayman R was the one that really opened my eyes. It was so balanced, so forgiving, but it lacked power. So... In normal BC fashion, I want to look for the best Cayman that I could modify. And that ended up being the 2007 silver Cayman you guys see, a great Cayman you see with the twin turbos and the air-to-air intercooler in the back. I picked up that 2007 Cayman just to be able to explore things my way. It didn't exist. A Cayman that made a lot of power, that also handles the way Caymans did, didn't exist from the manufacturer. So I created my own. Gave it power, got to 481. It was perfect. Great power, lots of fun on the track, and even though it was a street application, full interior with red leather, both system, AC, it was fun. So I thought, what could I do to make this even better? As I was deciding about what I could do, I was talking to my good friend Sam about some opportunities there. I had Ron Palmer, who's the president of Porsche Owners Club, come to our facility. I was talking to him about my experiences and what I wanted to do. So that being said, Ron gave me a very good idea. He said, BC, build something that we can explore as a sanctioning body with the POC, the Porsche Owners Club. Build something that could exist between the Porsche Cup cars, which are like three, four $400,000 cars, or the Boxster Spec, which is like a, you know, anywhere from eighty dollars to $100,000 cars. Could you get up something in between that could really be fun? And talking to Sam, who's one of a great guy, he's here, I think he's still as well. We talked about his awesome fabrication skills and what we could do to create some masterpieces. Um, the concept came to light of doing something that's very balanced, taking that Cayman experience to the next level, which is a center drive application with telescoping pedals, adjustable steering wheel, and that could take a balanced car and make it even better. So I did pick up a this red. Uh, 986 Boxster uh, with an expired engine, and that was a perfect platform. And then this car was built, once again, um, if it wasn't deduced from my conversation with all of you, to be the genesis of a spec car for the POC that exists between the Porsche Owners Club uh, Cup Car Series and the Boxster, the Boxster Spec Series to exist in between, to give opportunities for enjoyment that's not as, as basic as a Boxster Spec, but not as crazy expensive as a cup car, and this was what came of it. So what you may have noticed, many of you, including the blogger who says that this is a show car, is we launched it at SEMA with great much fanfare, and since then, we've been testing quite a bit. 
And when I mean testing, it's not just me because I started with drag racing. I'm not a crazy road racer, but I'm learning. It's a very enjoyable experience. But I'm a novice still. I'm still not an expert road racer. And I, I have no chagrin in putting my videos up to show people what I'm doing. You see me learning how to steer, learning how to shift, learning how to do all kind of great things so I can get faster and faster. But what I've done is take my mantra, which is improvement, and infusing it in this project car. And my mantra is to become better each day than the day before. Even Ariana and I, we have great discussions. Ariana knows how I am. If I think she's a hacker, we talk about it, we move forward, and we look forward and not backwards. And that's what I do in everything, everything I do. So that being said, hey, Shell, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Forder said that you're absolutely correct. Um, I found ways of making it better. And, and Forder said that just mentioned about the splitter. So that's something that, once again, from advice from Chewworks, who's a, um, a Robert Chu, he did alignment on the car, and he's a very avid racer and very successful in road race. He said, basically, you need a Ford splitter. And I did that. So long story short, I didn't just sit down and think of what looks good. It was my goal to take the concept of the Cayman and Cayman R, Cayman S and Cayman R, take it a step forward, go with a chassis that's much lighter, so the boxer, when you gut it completely, is much lighter than Cayman, have the expense of a carbon fiber roof that was designed off a of Cayman, so it has that very nice look, and above and beyond that, build it for a POC opportunity as a spec vehicle. And if it's approved, we have the opportunity to have it um, mass-produced for people to enjoy. And the experience is absolutely fantastic. It was great. And it's just so balanced. So what have I done to improve on it in my sense of always being better? I had Sam, who's a very seasoned driver, track record holder, um, doing a lot of great things on the track. He's going to the Nationals at Coda very soon. He drove it, gave me some feedback. I had Ralph Gills, who is the um, global head of design for FCA for Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, get in the car, give me some feedback, and I did that. I had Matt Farrar recently drive it as well. I had Michael Belcher from, from uh, Cover Revolution. These are all people who have different takes on how a car should be, and I'm taking all this information constructively and infusing in this vehicle. So that gives me the opportunity to make it better for any driver. That is not the work of a guy who does show cars. That is the work of an engineer like myself and my team, where we have taken a scientific approach to a chassis that's unique and new and improving on it each time. People have asked me questions about the tire size. I, I explore that. Um, where the tires sit, how it sits in the rear is different from how it was when we first created it. I'm playing with different um, uh, measures of, I would say, uh, projection from the body. I'm playing with different tire sizes, different compounds, working with the Toyo. So it's a constant evolution. For track times, I can share this. I'm not an expert driver yet, but my first time out at Button Willow, I did a 203, which is very nice. Everyone wants to be sub two, but for the first time out with me, not being a great driver, to do 203, that's, that's very impressive. I'm very proud of that. So in the hands of an experienced driver, this thing is a monster. In the hands of a novice like me, to do 203 or Button Willow, that's pretty good. So I hope that answers your question, and I just want to explore that with you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Zane. I appreciate the kind words. And I saw a really good question come up recently. Hello, hey, I'm Warhorse. Thanks for seeing you. Um, no, it didn't. Davis asked him, does it take long to get used to the center seat? No. It takes a few moments. When you're pulling out the trailer, you may be like, oh, that's kind of weird. You try to move to one side. But no, it's when you, after a few moments on the track, literally a few seconds on the track, you will think, why isn't every car like this? It's so comfortable. Thank you so much, Veronica. Thank, thank you for the kind word. Um, I see Tiff Flame said that Odyssey should have won on uh, the Netflix show. Yeah, it should have. But as I mentioned in many shows before, we were told to run street tires. I still have the street tires on there while everyone else showed up with slicks. And that wasn't fair. But, you know, we live and learn. That was really, really interesting. Um, yeah, it's not a show car. So I don't know who that guy is, but good for him. Good for him. Okay. Um, horsepower of which one? I think someone calling everything okay? Okay. Um, Ari can take care of him. I can answer some questions here. So we had a gentleman come in, um, probably possibly a client. So I'll have Ari go ahead and take care of him while I answer some of the questions here. Um, I would love to build your EK. It depends on how long you want to wait. Um, so AJ is asking, thank you so much, Emmy, Twitter, for the, for the kind words. AJ asking, driving around and drive, what I think is easy. You know what? AJ, it's very weird because I go to UK every year. Um, primarily to attend the Autosports show at the NEC, um, at the uh, NEC in Birmingham. 
And I do rent cars when I get there. So that being said, when I do rent these cars, it's kind of weird for the first hour getting used to it. But after that, it is it really is natural. Really, driving around and drive in countries that allow for it, Japan, the UK, after a while you feel like it's, it's really natural to shift at your left and sit on the other side. It's actually pretty nice. So I enjoy it, and it, it does things with you. And see you, Daz, of course. So we can go and experience some great fish and chips and, and, and whatnot, libations or whatnot, you know? Um, parts do I have for the Stang? Nothing at this time. Um, it depends on what, you, what Stang you have. Do you have an EcoBoost, which I may have a few things, or a 5.0, which we have to do something bespoke. So let me know. Um, Dave said something. I don't know what he said. I'll go back. Ah! So Dave is saying a throwback to the Honda Shuttle. That's the first time you heard about me. Thank you so much. I love that shuttle so much. And I'm building another one just to be able to resurrect that great opportunity. Hello, Ruben. Good seeing you. Backstrom says, I'll race you. You accept? Backstrom, everyone wants to race me. It's, it's really interesting. I get this all the time. I can't race everyone who calls me out. It's pretty strange. Um, and Sammy, absolutely correct. It feels very natural. It's very, very fun. Um, on the Kimmin build, um, DJ Ramanov, I do have a twin turbo setup. So I'm running... Uh, Tnx 30s um, from Turbonetics, and they're twins. And that's about 56 millimeters on the compressor inducer size, which is pretty nice. Hello, Repanic. Good seeing you. Thank you so much. Um, so, um, Borqua Gucci Prada is uh, asking about the Monster CRX Syncam 1.5 I built years ago. So, he's asking about the vehicle that really helped me achieve a lot. That car was an 88 CRX, my first performance vehicle I've ever had um, here in the U.S., period. And that was a build that was purely experimental. So years ago, there was a shop called Good Performance, and they had this 1.6-liter CRX with a chop top, drag race setup, and it was fast. It was running 11 twos. I'm like, I will never get to 11 twos. That is so fast. That's a fast car. No, it's 11 2 or 11 7. I think it was 11 7. I'm like, that is so fast. I will never get to 11 7. That is too fast. Um, so I decided to build a 1.5, something different. So I did something very unique, understanding the relationship with flow and how the head holds the highest potential for power. And what I did was put extremely large valves, I mean so large that my intake <laughs> seats interlocked, um, did a bespoke header, ran dual 50 DCOSP carburetors from Weber, um, I ran 18.4 to 1 compression pistons, big bore, D-stroke, so I can unshroud the valves that are much larger in size than factory. Um, ran carburation on that as well, of course. Very simple Holly pump, um, a Digital 6, a, the first AEM cam gear to ever exist, which had no numbers on it whatsoever because I didn't need it because I degreed the camshafts in. Very large BCMO level X camshafts, BCMO valve train, Aluminum retainers, believe it or not, which needed constant service. That's why titanium is much better. And, wow, with some good tuning, um, a lot of experimentation, I got that to 238 horsepower to the wheels, which I'll post up the dyno chart so you guys can see on the dyno jet. And it ran 10.7 at 124 miles per hour. So that was my, that was my vehicle. It was pretty, pretty fun. Um, do I set a valve train for F22B1? Yes, I do. Um, we have uh, valves, we have springs, we have retainers for the, oh, B1, he's saying. So that's the non-VTEC one. So I have springs and valves for that, absolutely. So we do have that. Thank you so much. It was a crazy car. Um, any recommendations on suspension for drag racing? Oh, it's so weird. Yes, I do. Um, I have my friends, especially for your EG, I have my friends from Progress. They're very good. They're here in Southern California, they're in Anaheim, and they make a very good one. That's why the drag race setup I have on my um, Insight. Give them a call. I'm sure they can take very good care for you. Honda Boys for Life. Good for you. Yeah, I love Hondas. I love all type of cars. Oh, thank you so much, JDM. I appreciate the kind words. I remember you talking about the 2JZ swap. You should do it, by all means. Thank you so much. Um, Panamera Tune. So we have access to flashes, but most Panamera guys do not modify crazy. So I don't know if you'll see much from me in terms of crazy builds from them, unless Porsche wants us to do it. Oh, thank you so much, Chico. I appreciate the kind words. I'm just going through all your questions here. Um, let's see. Anything that you would do to my pulse chamber to maximize the power of the 3.0 Camaro? 
Okay, it's important. There are quite a few things. So bruiser, one big restriction on the 3.0 Carez is intake. So if you have the capability of going to ITBs, if your area allows it, that will change the whole car. It's just night and day. The factory injection, the MFI, is very restrictive. I always, with my dyno, put in a vacuum, um, or I think a max sensor in the intake to see what kind of capabilities that intake has for supplying the engine. And I noticed something very scary. So on the 3.0 G-body engines, when I monitored the intake vacuum at full throttle, after 3,400, yes, that low, after 3,400 RPMs, the engine intake manifold exhibits significant amounts of vacuum. So what that means is this. The intake manifold is the atmosphere that supplies the engine air. If the engine at any RPM demands more air than the intake manifold can supply, you see a vacuum event. So that means the engine is choking. It wants more air, but the intake manifold cannot supply it, hence a vacuum forms. What that means is that you have significant restriction. And if my memory serves me correctly, I think we saw as much as two inches of depression, which is ridiculously high. So it's demanding that much vacuum um, from the intake manifold. So the best way to solve that is to remove the restriction and you see the power shoot up like crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if you can see a good 10, 15, even 20 wheel horsepower if you address the intake manifold restrictions on a Corolla 3.0. So I hope that helps. Thank you so much, Barry. I appreciate the kind words. My pleasure, four-door sedan. Um, so let's get some more questions because you guys have there's so many questions here. So um, let's talk about some questions that some people wrote in. What do you have, Ari, so far? We have a question from Adam Bendov. Adam Bendov, I remember you. Do you think seam welding is a good idea for road cars? I do. Or is the extra stiffness not worth the weight penalty? Would it be better or worse than a roll cage in terms of rigidity and weight? Safety concerns aside. Okay, hello Fox. Let's stop backwards. Seam welding is a great idea, but it does not provide a good substitution for a cage, for a properly designed cage. With a properly designed cage, I can lift, like the one in this box in here, I can jack up one corner and the whole car comes up. It's crazy. So a properly designed cage not only allows for impeccable safety for the occupant or occupants, it does a great job in helping with rigidity of the chassis. And I myself many times will sacrifice the weight of a car for the performance of a very rigid chassis. Seam welding does a great job in providing more rigid opportunities, especially in unibody cars. But depending on the weight penalty I would say magnitude, that may be a give or take. If you're adding 30 pounds ballast, okay. But if you're adding 100, 150, no. And nothing, I say again, nothing is a substitute for a properly designed cage. Hello, cylinder support system. I think you have my number. Give me a call when you have a chance. Hello, young French. Hello, Bruiser. Hello, Rich. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. What else do we have, Ari? Another question from AJ. AJ, another good question. As cool as it is. It is so warm here. My goodness. Okay. <laughs> As cool as it is for you building high horsepower, highly expensive cars for the OEMs, uh -huh. what is the purpose of it? Uh, How would Honda, Ford, Chrysler, or Porsche benefit from spending large amounts of money on such amazing creations? Is it marketing, exposure to potential customers, etc.? So that's a great question, AJ. AJ is asking, these cars we build, like the one right here, we have other vehicles here, we have another one from Hyundai here, another one from Hyundai there, we have a Dodge here. Why is this beneficial to the OEMs? And it is massive. If you see how much it takes to build a prototype chassis for a major auto show, for a manufacturer, it is astronomical. It goes well into seven figures. But what we do, taking a post-production vehicle, so not pre-production, but one that already exists or is about to exist, and then creating go-fast parts for it, creating a lot of power, Dino Queen or not, being able to show the potential does wonders for a manufacturer. Um, I think back to this Odyssey. Even though the average mom, average dad is not going to want a thousand horsepower Odyssey, when this Odyssey was built, not only do we have a great job in creating aftermarket support for the platform with the J35, why? Not only do we have the opportunity to show what a van could do, not only do we have the opportunity to show that you can eat your cake and have it too, have a nice mommy mobile but also have it very cool and a lot of fun we after building this car and it going on top gear gave american honda 
the highest quarter sales for Odysseys ever. That quarter, when it came out on Top Gear, people are attracted to chassis that can do wonderful things, even if they don't do it themselves. There's an affiliation that's there. There's a, an appeal that's there that's very cost-effective for a manufacturer, for an OEM. What they, what they compensate us is nothing compared to what other companies or advertising venues have to do, and they don't get that much more exposure. People love this. This van, no matter what I build, is the most popular car. It's giving back more and more and more. It's very, very popular. And Honda has benefited significantly from it. And then now there's a Hot Wheels available for it, which continues that legacy going. It's, it's, it's a very cost-effective marketing opportunity. And more OEMs are starting to realize that. And that's why Ari gets calls from time to time on what to do. It's really great. It is a cost-effective, great opportunity for marketing for companies. So instead of doing some crazy television commercials, how many of us still watch television? Um, this is an opportunity where we can build a crazy project car for an OEM. The media runs with it. So blogs, vlogs, all of you love it. Television shows come. All this great stuff happens. And it yields sales for the manufacturer. It's a true win-win for everyone involved. Except for me when I cry and I only have seven weeks to build it and it's very painful and they don't pay us very well and it's so sad and my team gets upset and it's sweet. But, you know, but it's great. At the end, we're very, very happy. But it is wonderful. And it's not as much money, AJ, as what you may think. The little non-movable cars that are one-offs that go to manufacturers, that's where the money is. Maybe that's what we should be doing. But it's not, it's not a passion of mine or Ari's or any of the team members here to build a car that's not mobile, that just looks like a car but doesn't move at all. You have to kind of crane it in and put it on the floor. and That's not exciting. What's exciting is taking a 200-horsepower minivan, making 1,000-plus horsepower, converting to six-speed, exploring the opportunities for parts production, which all of you can benefit from, driving it, having other mad people drive it, having Matt Farrar drive it, having Rutledge drive it, having Spike Francis drive it, and they're all like, this thing is awesome. That is the joy. It's more than money. It is being able to experience wonderful things. Thank you so much, Chico. Appreciate that. You are a very kind gentleman to share that, Rich. I appreciate that, Rich Davis. Thank you so much. It is a sleeper, absolutely. And it would have been a lot more fun if that show we did with Netflix with the sleeper that everyone actually obeyed the rules, or if I was more prepared, and I'll take responsibility, I obeyed the rules. I should have been more prepared and brought slicks with me in the back, just in case. Because I just didn't think that people would cheat. I had people, I had twice inspectors come here to make sure we're running pump gas and that we're running street tires. DOT, regular street tires. No cheater slicks, no drag radios. Twice. So I'm like, these guys mean business. I'm just going to obey the rules and go there. But when I start smelling race fuel, at the shooting, and then people running slicks. It's not cool. But anyway, live and learn. Thank you so much, Dion. Peace to you as well. Thank you so much, DG. Thank you, Dell. Thank you so much. Oh, Gary, what else do we have? Well, wow, time is flying. We've had 30 minutes so far together. That's so crazy. Okay. Yes. Question from Wally Rifai. Wally Rifai. Okay. Yes. Could you delve into achieving OBD2 compliance in mm. a wild street legal bill like your Odyssey yes. to pass emissions? Yes. This is to pass the OBD2 scans for emissions in California, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and countless other states. What options do we have, and what is the most cost-effective approach? Okay, so he's asking if you have a crazy build, like a crazy, crazy high-horsepower build like an Odyssey, to get it to be emissions compliant, what do you need to do? Well, it's very, very extremely expensive out of the budgets of most of our companies to make that happen. But we have an advocate. We have a friend in SEMA. So many of you have, may have heard of the SEMA show. They're more than a show. They're true advocates and liaisons between us shops and the government. So to be able to do that, what you would have to do if you're starting from scratch is to design a proper kit, make sure all your emissions com components aren't in place, the charcoal consumption, the uh, EGR, the tank vent, all that works properly. Use a factory ECU. Find a way to flash it properly and still keep everything in place. All emissions should stay in place as well. Then you can go to SEMA, and I think it's $8,000 for them to do the process and paperwork for you to get you to get compliant in all 50 states. So as you can imagine, for a privateer or a small company, that can be very expensive to do. But that's what you need to do, and we have advocates at SEMA to make that happen for us. So thank you so much. 
Yes, you know, we all need a lot of power. I'd be more than happy to help. Peter says, we love your mid-seat. A boxer came in. Would I ever plan to create shipping kit for people to transform their boxers to that? Or would you create a limited production? Well, Peter, here's what we are going to do. This vehicle right behind me here is for off-road use only. So four track cars, not for street applications. And as I just mentioned a moment ago about compliance, it can be quite cost prohibitive to be able to do something that's emissions legal. So if you're doing it on a track, the team and I, Sam, Duran, Ari, will all be more than happy to build one for you. That's not a problem. We can build that for you. We are putting together opportunities to have that happen. Everything on the car is digitized, from the cage to the interior to the engine. Everything is digitized and blueprint so we can easily replicate it very quickly in a very timely manner. So if you're interested in something like that, write to us at sales at bcmo.com and the team and I will be more than happy to assist you. No problem whatsoever. And it will be an honor to help you, Chico. Thank you so much. Um, Fresh Ninja is asking, what were my motivations for growing up in the game? Were I trying to make someone proud or was I just seeking to be an innovator? I would say almost a little bit of both and none. So the thing is that growing up in a household like I did, my parents are both scientists, very strict. I'm from Nigeria, West Africa. Came here at 16 to go to school. I attended university back home when I was 15. Didn't learn much. I wanted to learn more. I've always had that, that curiosity. You know that curiosity you have when you're a baby when you're first born? And you want to explore everything. You're putting everything in your mouth. You want to know how things work. You're asking questions. That never went away from me. Um, many times, I don't know what happens in, in the life of an infant growing up, and they just give up. Maybe they're discouraged. But my parents always encouraged me to foster that, that, that creativity and keep going with it and thinking about why things work and using that as a way to become more aware. So I just fell in love with the science, sciences, of course, and just thought my parents wanted to be a scientist like them. Came here to study chemical engineering, and while I was in school, my parents were very strict on me not exploring sports. So I never played sports. I just, all I did was study. When I came to America, and with some bad influences at Circuit City where I used to work, Terry King, you know who you are, John Mitchell, you know who you are, they got me into this very interesting racing, drag racing scene on both the track and the street. And since I never had any experience exploring anything, I jumped into it big time. That was it. I was hooked. My first thing that is close to sports is so much fun, adrenaline, and my goal, because I did so poorly the first time out, my goal was to become better. Same thing I do today to exist the next day as I did better than the day before. And it wasn't my goal to be an innovator, I just wanted to go faster. It wasn't my goal to be popular, I just love what I do. And then people took notice and so did manufacturers starting with American Honda. So that was really good. So I hope that that, that helps quite a bit. Um, Rx7, Remy says, I've followed you for a few months now, but I'm, uh, but I'm loving your work. I want to build a base 996 to twin turbo. I plan to look into things to have for sale, see if I can do that easily. It's not easy, especially since it's not commercially available. But if you hang tight, um, I'm coming, off with, coming out with a kit very soon for a 997-1, and that shouldn't be too far from a 996, especially if you have a 2000 and up. If you have a 99, that's going to be very difficult because a 99 Carrera 996 is a, what they call mechanical throttle linkage. It's not what they call in the push word e-gas. So there's no aftermarket support for engine management for that and no flashing solutions. So it has to be something where you have to infuse an infinity yourself or do something creative like that, um, which can be a little bit more involved. But if you have a 2000 or newer, then boom, you're good to go. You can hang tight, we'll have a kit soon, and you will love it, which will be very, very good. Okay, Aries, give me the look like I have all these questions, BC, and you're not answering. <laughs> We're 40 minutes in. Okay, so Ari, what else do we have? Question from Zach Gamerman. Zach Gamerman has a question. Does having only a... Stiffer rear sway bar and a stock front sway bar upset the balance of a front-wheel drive car since front-wheel drive cars are more prone to understeer? Well, it's more the, 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 uh, the opposite. As a matter of fact, having a rear bar balances a car amazingly well. As a matter of fact, you can keep going and going, and what you'll notice is that the bigger bar you have in the rear, the more traction you have in the front. And above and beyond that, there are even cars that, there are race cars are front-wheel drive that remove the sway bar completely to enhance front-end traction. They remove and don't run a front sway bar at all. And the larger the rear sway bar, of course, you get to a diminishing returns. As a matter of fact, the more you get into it, what you end up noticing is the bigger and bigger bar you go, you may get to a point that when you hit a corner, it will lift up the inward wheel in the rear, which is pretty interesting. Which is fine because you still have excellent traction in the front. Um, and for those cars that remove the sway bars, they don't leave the factory springs, of course. They have spring rates that are very high to allow for less roll. 
you will notice a better balanced and a more exciting car, a front-wheel drive application with a larger sway bar. Think about it. Front-wheel drives were designed in mind by manufacturers to cut costs for better adhesion in slick conditions, whether snow or rain. It's just a, a cheaper way to build a car that's safer in wet conditions. But we as enthusiasts have done crazy things with them to make them race. And one of those crazy things to do is to have a nice, hefty bar in the rear. It completely transforms the car and makes it absolutely fantastic. Um, UA9 is asking, do I feel the J37A4 TL is a good platform? Absolutely. Engine is very, very nice. Nice displacement. Head's decent. Um, the camshafts, if you find the ones especially that don't have the press-on lobes, that's a great opportunity. I see a lot of J37s will press-on lobes. And what that means is if we have to reprofile them, we can't grind on them. If you have one that is intact where it's the shaft is part of the lobe assembly, very good. Or if you have the budget to do a billet, that's even better. But a J37 is awesome. If I had one change I could do to J37 bottom end, that would be to have a four-bolt main, because those have two-bolt mains, which limits your power capability with crazy high horsepower opportunities, which is pretty interesting. You know. Yes, sorry. Question from AJ. AJ, I think he's still here. How would rendering an H22 or B18 five-speed transmission or a four-speed transmission reduce the chance of it breaking under high torque? I've seen a couple examples on YouTube. So I think what AJ is asking, I think what you're asking AJ is, how can converting from a five-speed B-series or H-series gearbox to a four-speed improve the power potential? And it's actually quite simple. So one thing about the main shaft and counter shaft in the gearbox is that as you start increasing torque, as you start inputting more energy into, the, into those assemblies, they start wanting to spread apart. Because you know we have helical gears in them. So the helical gears do a good job of spreading them apart. And as the gears interact on the tips, boom, you break the tips of the, of the, uh, of the gears, and it shreds it, and it's pieces, and you don't have a gear, and it's rubbish. So what we have noticed from years ago, and I noticed this, geez, in the early 2000s, late 90s, um, there's one gearbox that I like so much. Even in five gears, it was very robust, and that is the D16A9, D16A1 gearbox from the first gen Acura Integra. That gearbox was robust. It had the casing with two bearings that existed between fourth and fifth gear. As a matter of fact, the fifth gear was outside the gearbox with a cap. And what that did was, because the housing was part of the bearing assembly that held the shaft together, at high horsepower, those gears don't spread apart, so you don't have that failure. I've run Stitch for years with those factory gearboxes with just a final drive. And sometimes, for better shifting, I'll modify the synchros to a dog-type engagement and weld them on. But it's been factory gears, which is great because they're robust from factory and don't allow for spreading of the main encounter shaft, which then messes up the gear. So, what H22 and B-Series guys do they remove the fifth gear and they put this handcuff with bearing assemblies, like a dog bone looks like, with two holes in it. And those bearings allow for an opportunity that those gears don't spread apart. We are lucky that with a lot of Honda engineering, they're really over-engineered. So we can push the gearboxes to high horsepower, high torque levels without shredding them. For cars that are designed to make 150 to 200 horsepower, which is really good. So that is the answer to your question. You know? Thank you. Yes, it is, uh, Picasso, and thank you for the kind words. No cap, I didn't see a question. I may have to go back to that. Um, YS1, I haven't had much experience with the YS1s, so I don't have much of an opinion on them, Chico. So sorry. Okay. Yes, Ari, what else do we have? CT Racer wants CT, to CT, Alfie, I think you're here. He has some questions on brakes. Okay, yes. Bigger disc or bigger calibers with more pistons? That's question number one. Hmm. It has to do up here with heat. So, you know, the brake system is just a glorified friction assembly. That's all it is. So anything that can give me good adhesion with reducing heat. So if my, it depends on the size of the disc itself. All things being equal, if we have a proper size disc, I would say a larger caliper to dissipate heat with more pistons to improve that opportunity for friction. But what's the second part of this question? Carbon ceramic versus traditional iron. Oh, car carbon. Carbon, once again, it's a friction activity. Carbon does a great job in giving excellent friction. It's very lightweight, um, extremely durable. You don't have to worry about warping or any kind of crazy stuff. You have to handle them with care. You can't drop them on the surface. They'll chip and they're expensive. 
So that's what most people don't like because they're the expensive nature of them, but they last very well. So Alfie, if I had a choice between calipers or more pistons and a disc, I would say all things being equal with a decent sized disc, caliper upgrade is definitely in the cards. Material-wise, carbon. You know, like what you and I experienced on the um, ACR Vipers? That's the ticket. That's the way to go. Carbon is king, like Chico said. Absolutely. Beautiful. Is that, does he have more? one more. Okay, one more question. What is your opinion on the best all-around street or strip braking combo for the average weekend driver? Average weekend driver? So if you're an average weekend driver, we have budget limited. Um, I would say go with a setup from Talix. Those guys are badass. They're from, 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 from Europe, from Italy. They know their stuff. It's what I run on this. It's what I run on the Porsches. It's, it's relatively cost-effective and just fantastic. And they are willing to go back and forth with you with pad designs and engineering. They have this eight-piston caliper that's sick. That I don't know how they do it because I haven't opened up the caliper myself. I wouldn't even dare. You can use your factory pedal assembly and master cylinder without having to worry about crazy volume being consumed. And you still have the improved braking. If budget is not a challenge and you have a little resources to back you up, carbon this. That's the way to go. Carbon this with an eight-piston caliper. In the front, you're good. It's awesome. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Kamel. So um, he said that he wishes he can wa watch this. He's at work. Um, what you could do, I'll have this up here on Instagram for 24 hours. And then I'll put it up on YouTube so you can view anytime you want. So you can go on the Beast Motor YouTube channel and subscribe. You can see it in the comfort of your home. And if you're driving at the gym, walking your dog, I put up a podcast right after this. And you can see it on iTunes, on Anchor, on Radio Public. There's so many opportunities that you can explore to be able to hear that. My pleasure, Alfie. Appreciate that. My pleasure, Kamal. I look forward to interacting with you some more. Okay. What else do we have, Ari? Question from JRA Photo. JRA Photo. Have you ever given any attention to a GM 3800 motor? No. Yeah, I know what he's talking about. No, I haven't. I haven't had the opportunity to do that. I have projects here like crazy. I, I really haven't, so I'm sorry. The GM38, I know they're somewhat popular overseas, but um, here in the U.S., they're not seen as, as performance platforms. And I love embracing unloved platforms, especially if they have a lot of potential, which many of them do, but people don't recognize them. But I haven't had the opportunity. And I don't think GM is going to call us and ask us to explore something that's archaic. But, you know, it is, it is what it is, you know? Oh, thank you. Um, Chico says, I have to go. Um, have a great time, Chico. I appreciate that. Josh, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. Yeah, by all means, um, Josh, you can go on the YouTube channel of BC Moto. Just do a search for BC Moto, subscribe. Um, there are quite a few fellow enthusiasts there, and I post up everything from these tech interactions to what I do on the dyno as well. So it's, it's pretty fun, by all means. Um, so I haven't built a uh, Subaru myself. I've helped a lot of customers with their Subaru projects. We've sold and designed a lot of parts for Subarus, pistons, rods, valve train, you name it. Um, I've put them in the right direction in terms of engine management solutions. But I have not had one in-house. I don't have a relationship with Subaru America or Subaru USA. And if that happens, boom, we'll, we'll have a good time. Subaru Descartes says, hi, Ari and BC. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, so how are we doing so far on questions? Three we more have, questions to go. We have uh, 48 minutes elapsed. We got this. A few minutes. Okay, we got this. Okay. okay. Uh, question from our friend JDMJ. Okay. How important are lost motion assemblies? Are Very. they worth upgrading for turbo? So... Lost motion assemblies are very important. That is, as the name implies, a lost motion assembly is, is a device that most of the time piston stuck, kind of like a plunger piston style, some are spring style, where when you have a VTEC assembly, you have two outer rockers, which are the non-VTEC ones that can typically rise on at low RPMs and low load levels. They have the center big rocker assembly that is activated by all your pressure and engages to allow you to have more power. It's like swapping a cam out midway where you're driving. When you're on the lower RPMs, lower sections, that big rocker is just sitting there, not doing anything, not being utilized. And it can be quite noisy. So the lost motion assembly allows that center rocker to sit down and not be noisy, not make a bunch of ruckus. Turbocharging NA doesn't really matter because the lost motion assembly could care less. But when you have aggressive camshafts, when you have an engine of long age or an older engine, um, one that has quite a few miles on them, those assemblies tend to deteriorate, especially the plunger style. Um, the D-series guys cannot do anything but buy new ones or find ones that are in good condition and salvage it from other engines. The B-series guys have many opportunities to upgrade them from the plunger style to something that you may see in the newer Type Rs where they're spring assemblies. So it is important to prevent 
noise and, and, and to ease the interaction of the pin when oil pressure gets up to speed and engages for the larger camshaft. So it's good to do that, you know? Sounds good, uh, Cinder Support Systems. I will talk to you soon. Um, B. Menduria is asking how I feel about interns. I love interns. We have interns here all the time. If you're interested, um, I would be more than happy to explore that with you. Uh, just write to us at sales.bcmo.com and maybe you can come by and help out here and explore and see what we're about and contribute and maybe you'll stay and maybe get picked up by other companies. We have a lot of people, a lot of relationships with major OEMs and they love our interns, which is pretty interesting. Um, custom Stroker Kit made. Uh, Brian Crower could be one. Um, Trom Pistons. He, I think they have a relationship with Eagle. Um, so I'll say Trom and Brian Crower. Give them a call. They can help you out with that. Okay. How are we doing so far? How many more? Yeah. I have, my, 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 my timer is like showing red here, which is interesting. It says 50 minutes. Okay. Two more questions. Two more questions. Let's get to them. We have a question from Hellraiser S2K. Hellraiser S2K. Okay. How should I strengthen my AP2 S2K transmission? I'm making 720 wheel horsepower with a low compression turbo stroker motor. Okay. So he's making 720 horsepower, stock gearbox. Once it's strengthening, yeah, those gearboxes are not very, very strong. And especially on how quickly your torque comes on board, it could be, it could be really, really interesting. <sighs> to be honest with you, you have to go to a Quake gearbox. That's the only way that you can have the strength and longevity for that kind of power. You have to go with a Quake. Quake does make uh, inline gearboxes that are sequential in nature that can bolt on easily to the bell housing for a S2000. Um, if you need help with that, write to us at sales.bsmall.com. We can help you, but with that kind of power level, that gearbox wasn't designed for that. It was designed for 240, 270 horsepower setup with some space there. Um, people even break those when road racing. For that kind of power, if you want longevity, you have to upgrade to a Quave. You have to invest the resources and do it. Thank you so much, CP. I appreciate that. By all means, by all means. And with last question, Ari? We're going to wrap this up with the okay. last AJ question. AJ question, one last more. <laughs> Is there such a feature on a standalone ECU or a feature that can be programmable onto a standalone ECU in which the car will rev match oh. for you on downshifts like yes. a factory 370Z will? Yes. Or is there no such thing? No, there is. Um, the AM Finney can do that for you. And I, it was ideal you need to have a driver wire setup, but yeah, it can be, it can, yeah, you can easily program it to retard the uh, closing of the throttle position and to initiate a little bump in timing when you start shifting, and you can even define that window. So um, I may have given too much away, but yes, um, AJ, you can do that with an AM Infinity with Aquam and even make things more interesting than what you can see factory from Nissan. Yes, you can. So guys, that's my time this afternoon. What I'm gonna do is I'll come back in because I'm getting a warning now from our friends at Instagram and they're telling me to please <laughs> wrap it up. So I would definitely be more than happy to come back in a few moments. You can join me, and I'll ask some quick questions live before I go grab a bite, before I head off for some more meetings. So good seeing you guys. Come back in a few seconds. Talk to you soon, and cheers.